ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I grew up watching the British interview TV show Parkinson on the ABC and I still remember its most glorious moments quite vividly. Michael Parkinson's generous style of interviewing made some of the most private people in the world feel secure enough to tell their funniest and most risque stories and to reveal their vulnerabilities. But Parky was never all that interested in going for what's known as the celebrity sob, which is why it was so extraordinary that when Parkinson himself was being interviewed, that he should burst into tears talking about his dad, John William Parkinson. And now he's written a book about John William Parkinson, Yorkshireman, miner, humorist and fast bowler. Because of the COVID crisis, I spoke with Parky down the line to his home in the UK, but the internet wasn't having one of its best days that day, and we were only able to connect for a short time before the bit of string between our two tin cans got cut. I talked with Parky about his early life and his much-loved dad, a Yorkshire miner who enjoyed a laugh and a pint, but above all he loved cricket. And his fondest hope was that his only son, Michael, might one day play for Yorkshire. Instead, Michael Parkinson became a journalist and then Britain's most famous TV interviewer. The book that Parky wrote with his son, Mike, is called Like Father, Like Son, A Family Story. Michael Parkinson, welcome to Conversations. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, it's a reminder of, of the, the old man. Well, why I cried, that, that's really the genesis of the book, in a way. I mean, why did I cry 40 years after the death of my father, having thought that I'd stowed the grief away, that it had gone forever, for it to, to arise at that moment in time when the interviewer asked me, a clever question, actually. He didn't say, when your dad died, how do you feel? He said that at the moment when your dad died, can you remember what you saw? And then it was that image that came into my mind of my father being carried downstairs by two guys. Uh, my father was in a plastic bag, and I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have seen it, of course, but I did. And that image, that awful image of someone you love dearly being transported like a wardrobe <laughs> out of your life, I'm buried, I thought. And how little I knew about grief. I mean, that's what you learn as you progress through life, about things that really haunt you. And they are very difficult to understand. The grief is one of those things that I've never dealt with it before. And I thought I, by shoving it away that I, I kind of done with it. Not in the sense that I would forget my father. I would never do that. But in the sense that I dealt with the grief side of it. I dealt with the, the tears and I dealt with the, that moment you, you, you lose somebody forever. And then they are 40 years later. And I said, it was a simple question. I stopped boring my eyes. I don't tell them, what does what has happened here? Were you as surprised as anyone in that moment that you would burst into oh, yeah, tears? totally. I mean, I couldn't, I mean, I knew that Piers Morgan interviewed, very good interviewer. Your son points out how often you've asked the questions of your male guests about their dads. When you started work on this book, what kind of approach did you want to take? I had a curious kind of genesis because... When we were discussing the shape of the book, Michael and my son, Michael, my, my son is my, is my, my boss. <laughs> he, does, he runs my life and he runs our production company and, and all that. And he, and he tackled this, this job from a different perspective to me. He, he looked at the, the history of mining, if you like. He looked at the importance of all miners in our society. You know, 
In Britain, we, we, we took them for granted, you know, there were these moles who lived underground. And my father's one of those people who went down a hole in the ground. So it was, it was that, that area that Michael had been exploring while, while I'd been just thinking of other things. I just want to go back to that moment when you fell into tears about your, your, your dad in that interview with Piers Morgan. When you think of your dad at his happiest, what image do you have of him in your mind? When I, I, I look back at my father and, and what I remember was just the contentment he had doing the simple things. For instance, it would be his idea of paradise to sit behind the bowler's arm at Laws or Headingley, watching a test match between England and Australia. He would then be the most blissfully happy man in the universe. And that was a simple enjoyment of life. If the work of the coalface was, was hard and horrible back in those days, how serious were coal miners like your dad about their leisure activities? Very much so. I mean, the thing about living in a mining village is that, you know, people didn't play cricket just for fun or grow parsnips just to eat or tomatoes to eat. I mean, you know, the trick was to have the biggest tomatoes and the best parsnips in the pit village you were in and, and get win an award. I mean, prove to the, the rest of them that, that you were the best. And they would like playing cricket as well. I mean, cricket became, cricket was a very important part of our culture and about pointing out to the rest of the world that we were you know, better than them. Uh, and that was the thing. It's a very competitive life that you led. Um, and I suppose a lot of it was to distract attention from the reality of life because it wasn't pleasant. I mean, to work in a hole in the ground in a pen double in a seems only two and a half feet high or three feet high, like my dad did, digging coal 10 hours a day, is, is, not, is, is not good. And yet for all that you say, I, you can't think of another place that you'd have rather grown up in. I like the feeling that you were part of a, a situation that cared. You know, no, no child was an orphan in that place at all. Uh, we were going through our daily routine and the, the pit siren would sound, which was the indication something had happened in the pit, an accident or a death or whatever. And, and the village froze. It wasn't just my mother who stopped ironing and wondered if it was bad news. It was all of us. So there was a shared responsibility, if you like, one to the other which is often talked about and romanticised, but in fact was real and made for a community that cared. Now, to grow up as a child in that, to be free to run around and, and not to be, be afeared, was what I remember. And um, I carried that sense of security with me, I think, throughout all my life. Your, your book is called Like Father, Like Son, but are you really that much like your father? Because it seems, reading your book, you're more driven like your mum. Is that right? Mm, that would be absolutely right. But the title was uh, almost a sardonic question. And it happened when my father was dying and, and I went upstairs one night to talk to him and drank a bit of his medicine, which didn't do anything harm at all. And we, we got talking and banging away and, and he had his hand outside the covers on the bed uh, with the palm turned upwards. And I just put my hand on his and just felt how the rough texture of his hand, a horny hand, a working man's hand, uh, as against my own, and the thoughts, and I, I sort of thought, I wonder what to write about this. It's, it's, and it's called Like Father, Like Son. And as I said, there's a sardonic twist to that. It doesn't mean, yes, oh, yes, I'm not. I'm not. I wasn't at all. Was your mum ambitious for you and for your dad as well? Well, she was. I mean, she was frustrated, and her ambition came out of a frustration she had that she should have gone to university. And she certainly would have done nowadays. She's a very bright, intelligent woman, but 
Her brother, who was also a bright and intelligent man, was sent off to university with as much money as the family could rustle up to pay for him. They were still paying off about 20 years later. So my mother had to go out to work to support the family and all that. She carried that with her like a millstone for the rest of her life. And, and, and it made her, at times, a dissatisfied uh, woman. My father never was. My, my mother was. She, she, she felt the pain of, of being who she was at the time that she was born. Uh, she started uh, designing fair outlet wear from home, from our house. And she had a very good freelance business going uh, for the rest of her life. And she, she did was very successful. Actually. When she died, we found this store of patterns, knitting patterns that she designed, uh, modeled by people like Paul McCartney and, and people like that. You know, there's, 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 Sorry, Paul, the McCart Paul McCartney modeled your mother's knitwear? Yeah, yeah, of course. Wow. Paul McCartney and Roger, and Roger Moore. Well, I mean, Paul McCartney was photographed wearing one. And so we found all these things in, in her box, you know. And, and I, I mean, I, I, she told me about it, but it, it was an indication of, of this, how successful she had been. So she was thwarted. She, so she lived her ambition. She channeled her ambition to me and to my dad. She, I mean, my dad was not ambitious. I was. There's a difference. Uh, I had more reason to be ambitious than my father because I had more hope than he had. But nonetheless, she grabbed over my dad and she said, listen, you know, why don't you be a boss? And he didn't want to be a boss. He wanted to be a, a miner. He wanted to be one of the lads, of course. And I understand that. It was terribly important. But she convinced him he should be a kind of under-manager. And, and she made him take the examinations. And he wasn't a bookish person, my father. And I, I remember doing my homework, sitting at a table. And at the other end was my mum and my dad. And my mother driving my father, literally, through a book on mining so he might pass his examinations. And he did. And she was happy with that. The extraordinary thing about my mother was she was so ambitious about me and wanting me to do everything, you know, make a name for myself or da-da-da-da, that when I came to the point where I said, I'm leaving this local paper, I'm living at home, and I'm going to live in Doncaster, she said, well, can't you do it from home? She had this uh, <laughs> wonderful drive and uh, an imagination, but she couldn't bear the thought of me leaving the house. So, I mean, how crazy is that? <laughs> what would your dad like as a storyteller, as a raconteur? He was great. Yeah, he loved, he loved yarning, you know. He loved talking, and, and, and he was very good at it, you know. He spun terrible lies as a, as a father, I don't <laughs> um, But, you know, I, I, the thing about my dad, when I think back about him, of course, and that you, you relate to yourself as a father, is that he never, ever raised his hand to me. He never, ever, I can remember him really shouting at me angrily, you know, as if he meant it. Um and any disciplinary action that he, he devised against me was totally advised on his behalf by my mother. I would say, give him a like, and really he wouldn't. You know, he'd just walk away <laughs> smiling, you know. So I remember that very gentle side of him. Any child who can actually say that grows up into a fairly decent bloke, I think, you know, in the sense that you're not troubled by demons. The reason why I ask about the raconteur, because I, I notice how much you enjoy, as an interviewer, hearing a funny story. And I, I just wonder if your dad trained you in a way to be a good audience for a really good, funny, funny story. He taught me the virtue of humour and laughter. I remember being going to the cinema with him. He used to love Charlie Chaplin and all those great silent comedians, and I, I used to love them too. I remember very clearly, I must have been about eight or nine, being in the cinema with my father, 
And I'm in the middle of this film. My father was literally on the floor, rolling over laughing, <laughs> to the extent where the manager came out and I had to give him a warning of strange future behavior. <laughs> I thought that was terribly unfair. But, but he was that kind of bloke, you know. He, he, if he'd let George something, you knew the way he told the world he'd enjoyed it. And if he was angry about something, you'd know also too. What was he like as a cricketer, the kind of games he played psychologically with his opponents? He loved winning, and loved winning. And he wasn't a sore loser. He was a reflective loser, but he loved winning more than anything. And, and, and every game between became a test match with my father. I mean, even when we were on holiday, you know, we'd, we'd find a beach suitable for, for, for playing on, and then he would get the tide charts out. So that if he managed to persuade enough people to play against his team, which was my mother and my auntie Marge and my uncle Jim and all that, he would actually know the tide situation. It's very important because when the tide was in, it was good to bat because you just whacked the ball around the corner, went in the sea, and that was a fall. If, if the tide was out, which went somewhere like two miles out in Scarborough, then they was obviously better to bat in that, that ball in that situation because they couldn't hit a boundary. So all these things he would, he would put into his computer. And we were, we were not beaten in, in many years of beach cricket for, in Yorkshire. Yeah. That's extraordinary. The links you'd go to in beach cricket to learn the tidal fluxes. That's amazing. He, he was extraordinary about that. He was very serious. And also, you know, the beach cricket, he insisted that people play properly. I mean, he didn't want them just fanning around. Uh, you know, there was a purpose. We were going to beat this team. We used to play against other boarding houses called Peace Home and things like that and then thrash them. And they, they were Lancashire people, and uh, that, that was great as well. I mean, that, that was really they were traditional. And he was a happy man, and those were our holidays. That's what we did. My mother kept wicket with her coat. And it sounds silly, doesn't it? But that, those were our holidays. And I remember we used to go to a boarding house, and they would kick you out at 8 or 9 in the morning, and that was it. You couldn't come back till 5 o'clock at night. And often in, in Yorkshire, in August Bank Holiday, the weather was not like you have in Australia. It was could get a bit windy and nasty. And I remember spending uh, two or three days outside in a bus shelter and watching the rain come down because our beach cricket was impossible. There's nobody else there except the Parkinson family sitting there crowding the bus shelter <laughs> watching it rain. And yet somehow, somehow, the Parkinson family, we all enjoyed it because the thing was, that was the holiday. There was no other holiday there yet. You couldn't take time off. You couldn't just walk away or get in a car and drive somewhere nice. My dad had to go down the pit five, six days a week. And that was what he faced all his life. Which, when I think about it, made him an even more remarkable man than I think he was. Your father was determined to mould you into a great cricketer. And it seems, uh, <laughs> Michael, that your ability as a batsman was so devastating, you destroyed two buildings. My father was, was a good, good uh, father and, and, and no doubt good to his job down, down the pit, a good year of coal. But he was a lousy builder because he never quite understood the, 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 the mathematics of building somewhere. So he would build out of the most ramshackle uh, raw materials in trying to build a garage. And, it, and what happened to him was he got it up all right, but it, it then creaked and lent. So it leaned over and it was like a drunk at a bar. <laughs> but both of them I destroyed. We used to play our cricket and football outside against the door of the garage and on a couple of occasions a uh, mistimed hook shot. But uh, no, no, nothing deterred. I mean, he would build another one. He, he, he was remarkable, man. I mean, I, I spent days... So, so, sorry, Michael, uh, can, you, can you just explain how, how, he, how, <laughs> how it was that a hook shot brought down an entire well, I, garage? I, 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 I pulled it round. I, 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 actually, it was a pull. 
and I, I, I swim around pulling, and I hate the side of the building. Obviously, in a, in a crucial part, my father could not quite work out the geometry of it. And, and the entire edifice came down and crumbled. It came slowly. It didn't just explode. You know, it fell in slow motion, really. Um, but it was spectacular nonetheless. So he, he wasn't a very good builder of garages, but then he wouldn't be remembered for that at all. Did you ever tell him that you never intended to pursue a career in cricket? No, I didn't dare. But, I mean, it was quite obvious to me that I didn't have it. I mean, I was a bad player. I, I played for Varsley uh, in the Yorkshire League, which is a very good league indeed. And uh, the next step was was the county. And uh, I played there with Dickie Bird, and, and Dickie and I used to open for Varsley. Then a young chap came along five years after that and called Geoffrey Moycott, and he became the third of the trio that eventually... You know, made a name for ourselves, I suppose, for, for different reasons. And Jeffrey was always going to be a, a test player. Jeffrey looked like a test player when he was 13, 14. Uh, Birdie was going to be an umpire. <laughs> uh, but Dickie was a good player, too. Uh, and, I, and I was okay. I mean, I, I, I kept Jeffrey Walker out of the, out of the team when I uh, came back from the army on leave. And he just made it in the team and they dropped him. He's never forgiven me for that, Jeffrey. He carries a grudge. He's 18 now and he's still bitter about it. <laughs> Um, but no, we're friends. We remain friends. We keep in touch. Uh, we remind ourselves of those days long, long, long ago when we'd sit on the balcony at Barnsley Cricket Club and look down over the town and uh, just wonder what the future might, might hold. And none of us, not one of the three of us, could have imagined the reality of what happened. What did your mum and dad say once you got a job at the Manchester Guardian as it was back in those days? My mother was was delighted. My father had great doubts about me being in Manchester at all because being a Yorkshireman, he thought that the, the tribe of people who were called Lancastrians were the enemy. And, of course, it led to a wonderful moment where uh, I'd gone down to London, uh, I left the Guardian to join the Daily Express, Fleet Street, you know, and all this sort of thing. And, and I was very pleased with myself. And Mary I put into a nursing home and I arranged to, to go to a nursing home because she was pregnant with our our first child, and, and then I got this phone call from my father, and, uh, and he said, uh, job's done. And I said, what job's that? He said, uh, I moved him. I said, you moved who? He said, I moved Mary and, and kid, unborn child. I said, why? Where to? He said, well, I put him into a nursing home in Yorkshire. And I said, well, what was the problem with the nursing home in Manchester, which is where we were living at the time? Well, he said, as if I was daft. Well, don't you know what that means? And I said, no, Dad, I'm asking you. He said, if he's born in Lancashire, he can't play cricket for Yorkshire. That's what, <laughs> as if he was talking to an idiot. Didn't matter in the end. Didn't matter. He said, listen, if he'd wanted to play for Yorkshire, he could have done. And that's the point, I'm afraid, when someone probably from next door put on a Netflix movie and technical difficulties intervened, and that's where we had to end our conversation with Michael Parkinson. Podcast, broadcast, and online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Listener.